Good evening, we welcome you on behalf of the group. We should introduce. On the piano, we have Mr. Keith Gottschow. On the drums on stage left, Mr. Mickey Hart. On bass and vocals, Mr. Philip Lesh. On rhythm guitar and vocals, Mr. Bob Weir. On the drums on stage right, Mr. Bill Kreutzmann. On the vocals, Mrs. Donna Jean Gottschow. On lead guitar and vocals, Mr. Jerry Garcia. Would you welcome, please, the grateful pitch. It's a curious thing to be a deadhead in Australia. People have definitely heard of the Grateful Dead, but they don't really know who they are. Normally they are just a band lumped in with the Jefferson Airplane or Jimi Hendrix or any other 60s band. But the Grateful Dead were quite a bit more than just a band to millions of people around America. Led by lead guitarist Jerry Garcia, the Grateful Dead created an American musical phenomenon that spread across 30 years. After Garcia's death in 1995, the band's popularity continues to grow. Current and surviving members of the band, led by John Mayer, continue to sell out amphitheaters and arenas across the country. To get a better picture of this phenomenon in subculture, I spoke with Dennis McNally, the former publicist for The Grateful Dead and author of Long Strange Trip, The Inside History of The Grateful Dead. Are you really speaking on just the telephone from Australia? Uh, not exactly, no. I do have a microphone uh, set up through a laptop, uh, so no. No. Okay. No, I was just curious because you don't, you know, you sound like you're next door. Okay. Uh, I'm, anyway. I'm actually hello. in the house, Dennis. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're in trouble. No, no never mind. <laughs> Though I, I don't know it. I mean, you obviously know Oz better than I. Um, I, I am not surprised um, when, when people say, you know, Jefferson Airplane, you can talk about White Rabbit. There are a lot of reasons for the Grateful Dead's lack of recognition outside the United States. One is that uh, other than well, the obvious one is that other than uh, Western Europe, we never we never toured outside the country, and that was for a number of reasons. The Grateful Dead was this peculiarly American phenomenon. I mean, you know, and and among other things, they didn't make hit records. I mean, we we finally had a a hit of sorts in 1997, and it almost killed the band because we were already sold out everywhere and uh, going into cities where people were like hearing us on the radio and, and getting interested in really difficult because the way we had grown before that was sort of people actually uh, being being introduced to the Grateful Dead by an older sibling or a friend or whatever. And along with uh, listening to the music, uh, there was a certain code that was passed on. But when you suddenly say to yourself, well, I'll go to that show because that sounds like a good record on the radio. And then you find out the show's already sold out. You go anyway and you get there and you find this roaring party in the parking lot. It doesn't exactly encourage modest and sober behavior, shall we say. And that's what happened. The Grateful Dead was just one of those phenomenon that, you know, was born in the USA and, and pretty largely stayed there. The, 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 the songs were created this sort of, how do I put it? It wasn't, when you listen to the band, for instance, you're listening to an authentic Appalachian uh, voice. I mean, Levon Helm, you know, was from Arkansas. 
it's not Appalachia, but Southern in any case. Robert Hunter created what you have to think of as a postmodern blend of a lot of things, one of which was Appalachia. I mean, he wrote, you know, there's a wonderful story where uh, he was standing there and the Grateful Dead were playing Cumberland Blues and a person who was from the vicinity, Kentucky, I think, was sort of re- was really disgusted. Was, you know, look at these, these long-haired hippies, you know, taking one of our songs. What the guy didn't realize, of course, was that song. But it was so genuine, so well done, and such credit to Jerry and Hunter that you know they fooled him, and there was a lot of that. So that's sort of my long-winded way of saying they were just funny that way. uneasy about the idea of being outside the United States. And I said, look, you're going to have to do the same things, you know, that you do in Cleveland, but wouldn't you rather be in Paris? And in that case, <laughs> apparently not. But Would that be concern over maybe like the borders and whatnot and the customs and all that getting through? Would that would be something you guys had to that fight? There was, was extra, I mean, you know, there was a certain amount of that. In addition to uh, things like borders and, and hot and such, there's uh, also uh, just a lot of hard work there's a um, the the crew members are responsible for uh, and I'm pulling a complete blank on the word, but there's a there's a word that describes the uh, the paperwork they have to go through, enlisting the contents of each load case, and if one of them is wrong, technically the customs can like just shut shut them down. So it's a lot of extra work, mm-hmm. and you know they weren't any fun funder of extra work than you know anybody else. So there you go. Yeah, well, it may surprise you to think that Australia probably would have been the extra work. Australia is very strict quarantine, strict customs, strict everything, so it would have been a massive effort, actually, probably getting through. All right. And, and of course, the thing is that, you know, you 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 tour uh, and you get you get offers from promoters based on... We, we uh, the Grateful Dead built their touring ability up in the United States on... Uh, you know, endless repetition and and starting in the late 60s and then they slowly built up. They also had some radio from American Beauty and Working Men's Dead and <clears throat> that got onto so-called underground radio across the country. But really until the 70s, I mean, the Grateful Dead could play in San Francisco and along the West Coast a little and in New York at the Fillmore East. And that's it, pretty much. So, you know... It, People think of them as this behemoth because we sold out stadiums in the 1980s, and by then we were. Jerry said that we were the slowest growing rock and roll band ever, and we were. The, the, the odd part was 
we kept growing for 30 years. We never stopped. We were still growing in 1995. And in fact, could say that we're still growing because I would venture to say that right now there are more people in the United States that identify themselves as deadheads than there were when Jerry died. The music has, the music totally has separated in, in some sense, even though there is Dead and Company and it does very well. People really love it. The music has separated itself from the band. The Deadheads reclaimed it, as it were. And what has happened is now there are anywhere from one to 10 cover bands, what, what you call cover bands, in every, virtually every city in America that play Grateful Dead music. And sometimes they play it straight and like the band, and sometimes they play like heavy metal or Hawaiian flat key guitar or whatever. I mean, there's a, there's a million variations. But that the music is more popular than you know the band ever was. Docks of the city Blind and dirty He asked me for a dime A dime for a cup of coffee I got no dime I got some time to hear his story And I love my Billy Baker better than all my wine More than my wine Yeah, that, that's something you touched upon I really do find interesting. I actually completely agree with that. I think the music is growing even here in australia i mean it's a much smaller scale but there are grateful dead nights you'll see them occasionally you know there's a community uh -huh. of deadheads here that's kind of something that's kind of a twofold question like the first would be how do you think the perception of the music is different now to say it was like in the 80s like in 85 did jerry and the guys feel they were really making this profound sort of eternal music i guess you could say I mean, eternal is a big word but you know long-lasting <laughs> product or no is it no. Jerry said, when I'm up there, I'm just trying to stay in tune. Yeah. <laughs> We're not talking about anything like that. Bruce Hornsby uh, describes Grateful Dead songs now as him, and, and they are, in a sense. There's some that are obviously, you know, are, are sort of good-time, rowdy songs. And, and that, but, you know, a lot of them people treat with, the, you know, the greatest respect. And the band, you know, they were trying to make good music, and but they were not saying, you know, it was a, remember, they were improvisational artists, and they were trying to stay in the moment and play well in the moment. And so the idea of, of you know, eternal music, no, Jerry, Jerry would be on the floor laughing with that one. How do you think the public perception of them has changed, like in the general public? In the, I'll give you, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. I'm from Owensboro, Kentucky, and we have the um, International Bluegrass Museum. Uh, mm -hmm. they, have, they have a little picture. I think Jerry's in it, I believe, when he was with the Bluegrass Boys, and they say. Jerry Garcia is a very accomplished musician, but we don't, they actually said we don't approve of his lifestyle choices or something like that. So they were definitely seen as like <laughs> a rebel, you know, Hell's Angel drug band, which I don't think actually they have that image anymore. Would you agree with that? Or is it, how has that changed? No, no, that's, you know, the Angels particularly are, you know, 
so far back in in their history that I haven't seen a, a, a biker at a, at a dead show, or at, at least backstage at a dead and company show lately. And I, I, I mean, it's it's just not part of the regular ambiance of the Bay Area now in general. No, the the how I, I'm not sure always how it, it it's seen now because in some senses it's kind of except for the dead company which sells out stadiums it's kind of gone back underground because as i say you've got dozens and hundreds maybe of of these bands but they're not famous i mean they're not you know they're not selling records again they're not selling records they're not part of the music industry they're just part of the grateful dead world and and they're part of the music industry only in that they have residencies at clubs where you know every saturday night or whatever you know in the date, um, they'll play and they will draw a solid crowd. And you know that's not going to get in the newspaper. That's not going to get on the radio. Uh, except there's also a Grateful Dead radio show. You know, all you know, dozens of them all over the country. Where what's left of the the spirit of the '60s in some ways is community radio, which you know is non-commercial, local, listener supported. They all, almost all, have a a Grateful Dead hour. In addition to David Gans does a national one on behalf of, of the band, there's also a local ver- version of that all over the place. They're very popular, and people, you know, people listen to them because, you know, it's sort of, uh, they're, they're, it's like family. I would like to, if you could describe maybe for people who, who don't know the Grateful Dead and are interested in listening, what a show was like from your eyes, you know, like, and also in a larger context of what a tour meant. Like, I think... I still think people don't quite grasp that the idea was you listen to like shows and not albums. That still is a, a weird concept to a lot of people. <laughs> um, yes, you, you listen to entire shows. What happened, among other things, is that in 1984, The Grateful Dead, we had a, quite a, a problem, and that was there were so many people recording our shows, and the band, the band had to finally confront it. It, it had sort of gone on, but it reached the point literally where we had a band meeting that I happened to be at where a band meeting was a company meeting. I uh, bet it's all employees. And uh, Dan Healy, the sound engineer, came and said, listen, we've got to do something about the recording only because there's so many mic stands, you know, people would set up right in front of him because logically they assumed that the best sound was at the soundboard. And they'd set up in front of him and he couldn't see the stage. And, well, that's a problem. So uh, eventually we segregated them to everyone's happiness which is to say, behind the soundboard. They couldn't see anything, and they didn't care because they knew what the band looked like, and they didn't block you know, either Dan's or the rest of the audience vision. And as a result, the way that you started hearing The Grateful Dead, certainly by the early 80s and on, was through tapes, like two 90-minute cassette tapes, and that would be enough for one show. It was like sort of the perfect envelope to hold the show because an, an album or even a CD... Uh, one, you know, one of each doesn't, you know, doesn't work. People, by by uh, permitting the band, but pardon, pardon me, by permitting the audience to tape, the band expressed a trust that this wasn't going to be, you know, for money. That was the one rule, you know. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, it was always honored. That trust just made the audience love the band even more. Now, the real reason I might add that that they did did this was, you could call it either cowardice or smarts. The cowardice is they simply couldn't be the, to, in order to stop taping, they would have had to really, you know, put down an iron fist and either, either, you know, run everybody through a metal detector on the way in or whatever. I mean, in other words, it would ruin the ambiance of the show 
to get really serious about um, about uh, stopping taping. My favorite uh, taper was a guy who who I won't remember. I mentioned his name. He would come to the shows. He was a somebody told me I think he sold medical instruments, but whatever it was, he came in a three piece suit and he he concealed his tape recorder in a hollowed out medical book and never ever ever was caught. So the the point is that that you could call that uh, you know the the reason they did it is they simply couldn't be authoritarian and and, and order people around. You could also call them very smart, and we, we did. We got a lot of compliments because, in fact, that was an incredible marketing thing because that trust made people, you know, it expanded our audience tremendously in, from the 80s, from the time of 1980 when we put out Go to Heaven to 1987, our next studio album, when we put out In the Dark. Now, there were a lot of reasons why In the Dark did really well, like Jerry had been sick and people were you know, excited that they were back and all that. But the fact was that, that the audience had grown. Why would people go see multiple shows in a row? Like, with the, how did the, like the Deadhead phenomenon? What, what was the attraction? Well, I think people wouldn't think it was. It, it was really quite. It, it was quite simple. Grateful Dead never played the same show twice. Unlike every virtually every other band, and plays the songs as cl- to resemble what you hear on the radio as closely as possible. Even great, you know, Queen, great bands, but still, they're they're, they're trying to duplicate what they recorded. The Grateful Dead used what they recorded as a sort of a first sketch. And over the years, they would develop it into whatever it became. So they, not only was each show different in that different song order, song eventually, you know, you would know certain songs would come in certain slots, but the order, but, you know, which ones changed every day. But they played them differently as well. Uh, they committed, they did two things in this world. Grateful Dead did two things that are pretty well unique. One was that they created a a sense of community, a bond with the audience that really is is unlike any, the fan base of any other band. And the other thing was that they created a music that was a fusion of all the American musics, whether it was folk or bluegrass or country or jazz or or R&B or blues or rock or whatever. And they based it on improvisation in a way Again, nobody had improvised quite so dramatically and quite so consistently since the early days of New Orleans jazz. And, and I mean, even even contemporary jazz, generally people are comping, that is to say, keep, you know, just maintaining while the soloist solos. This is not the Grateful Dead. Everybody was improvised. This is risky business, improvisation. It can produce magic. You can, you know, you can, it's about, it's literally, as David Freiberg and Quicksilver once said, it's like jumping off a cliff. I love, I love the way they jump off cliffs, you know. Most of the time they fly and.
what did uh what did the band think of all these people following them around because they got to be massive <laughs> massive by the end oh yes well um the band was grateful jerry garcia regarded any day that he didn't have to take a real job uh, as a very successful day and so you know they certainly didn't you know, didn't object to people uh, liking what they did. Somebody said, you know, how about her? What, what do you think about all these people? That, you know, they're, they're giving their lives you know, to you, to uh, to the Grateful Dead. Jay said, it's what I'm doing. You know, how can I put it down? And, you know, that's that's the thing. Does it do harm? There were occasional individuals who felt it came to harm, including Jerry, for that matter, because he didn't take care of himself. But um, uh, on the whole, if you said, you know, does it do harm? You, you know, what harm? Celebrate... Danny Rifkin was the uh, Grateful Dead's first manager, and he was the manager when I got hired as the publicist. And he was basically, at heart, a social worker, and he was happiest when he was creating the Rex Foundation, the Grateful Dead's Foundation, and, and, and administering it. And one day he was grumbling about the Grateful Dead and, and it being sort of, you know, fun and party and, and not serious and all that. And I said, you know, Danny, celebration is a legitimate human need. The world needs celebration, and, and God knows the Grateful Dead deliver it reliably and at a reasonable cost, uh, considering that uh, we always made a point of charging less than everybody else did for tickets. Now, I don't, God only knows, but what would have happened? I think we would have still been, you know, if Jerry had, was still with us, we'd still be at least less than everybody, if not not back at uh, $2.50, which is what the, the very first tickets cost. Yeah, no, um, you, long, you, long ago. When you look on like YouTube videos, they have ticket stubs, and it's always like, oh, seven dollars. It's so cheap, you know, for these amazing. Oh shows. God, yes. All my all my early shows were like four dollars, five dollars. I guess since the they had such a following, there must be some charisma. So maybe what was Jerry like, and what was it like to be around him, and what was some of the other band members like? I think they must have some charm to get so many people after. The band played in relate and and and, and, and you know day to day. Stuff in relation to Jerry. Jerry hated the idea that he was the boss. He wasn't the boss. He refused to be the boss. He refused to be responsible. But at the same time, he was he was this the you know the gravitational pull all went towards him. He had the largest personality. He was he, there's two kinds of measures. There's IQ and EQ, right? So IQ is your intellect, and uh, he was really really smart. Although Phil was probably even smarter by IQ points. But if you measured EQ, and EQ is emotional quality, is, is, you know, knowledge of other people, interest in other people. I listened to tapes of him, Jerry, playing when he was 18 years old, and people glommed onto him the same way they did 40 years later. He just, or 35 years later, he just, there was something, something about him. It's called charisma, and, it, and, and it's, about, it's about, in his case, it's about being really interested in other people. Being charming and funny, he was very funny. People wanted to listen to him, whether it's whether it was play music or talk.
crazy story. It really was one of the most remarkable things I ever saw with him. We were the Jerry Garcia Band, which was a bar band, okay? I mean, the equipment and the approach, strictly, it started out in a bar in San Francisco, and it was a bar band. And it was doing a tour that included Madison Square Garden, okay? That's how ridiculous it got. And we were sitting backstage. Uh, before the show, and Jerry's chief roadie and friend and whatnot, at that point manager, Steve Parrish, Steve's um, uncle was a man named Mitchell Parrish. Mitchell Parrish wrote the lyrics to the song Stardust, which is one of the most famous of all American songs from the the so-called Great American Songbook of the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Um, he was up there with Cole Porter and, and, and so forth. Parrish uh, was then 90, and he, his knees had gone, so he was in a wheelchair, but otherwise it was sharp as a tack. And he came to the show, and uh, he, he started off the conversation with Jerry. This room was just packed with people, all silent, listening to this conversation. And he, he, uh, he said, when I wrote the songs to Coconuts, which was the first Marx Brothers Broadway show uh, in 1928 i think it was blah 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 and he went off well a it's all true i mean mitchell parish did write the songs the coconuts the lyrics and and you know was in the heart of, of what they call tin pan alley for the next 30 years he was president of ascap which was a big deal in america but the amazing thing was that he i mean he was there he he knew about all this stuff because because he had been there Jerry knew all about this stuff because that's how well he knew American music. He knew all American music. He knew Tin Pan Alley. He knew he knew um, uh, gospel music. He knew, you know all of that stuff. He listened to it all, and he I mean he loved it all, and and he, I mean he was incredibly knowledgeable. I you know it was just extraordinary. One time I, I I came to him and I said you know I was listening to a version you'd done of Truckin' that I've heard a hundred times. And I realized in the middle that you quoted Woody, Woody Woodpecker. You know that you know Woody Woodpecker of the cartoon. Oh yeah. And, yeah. and he said, "Oh well, yeah, that's that's a song." And I went, "Oh." He said, "Oh yeah, uh, it's it 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 is that that song is part of the the theme song for the Woody Herman he's proceeding. You know, tell me all about it. And he practically told me who recorded. You know, who was the engineer that recorded it? I'm, I'm joking, but he really knew his stuff. So, you know, that's and and the rest of the band, I mean, Mickey, you know, incredibly knowledgeable about percussion and and all kinds of shamanism and all kinds of of amazing, you know, side views of the world. You have this band in which everybody came from completely different musical backgrounds. Phil Lesh had been composing, you know, 12 tone serial music with orchestras for 256 people. Kreutzmann was a R&B drummer. Pigpen was a, a blues singer. Bobby was a folky, and Jerry was a bluegrass banjo player, which is you know you can hear in his guitar playing. So they all came from different places. They all decided, consciously or not, to trust improvisation, really based on John Coltrane. And, and oh, and then they had a genius song uh, lyricist named Robert Hunter. And all together, that that's the great thing. Monkeys out on Main Street Chicago, New York, Detroit And it's on the same street Your typical city involved in a typical daydream Hang it up and see what tomorrow brings 
how about the uh, key- keyboard players, the piano players? How did they fit in to that sort of? Because I know they had, you know, they had several, but yes. Well, you know, Pigpen. I mean, it's a very odd thing. You've probably seen the. Have you ever seen the movie Spinal Tap? Oh yeah. So Spinal Tap has you know where the drummers are forever dying or leaving in some fashion. Well, that was obviously taken on the Grateful Dead's keyboard players because the key. What was really weird is when the keyboard player for a band that imitates the Grateful Dead called Dark Star Orchestra, when he died. That's 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 when I thought that was really taking it a little too far. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't jest. He was a very nice guy. The fact is, amazingly, and particularly for a guy as perceptive as Jerry, uh, for various reasons, they kept picking the same kind of, a person with the same kind of personality flaws as Pigpen. So Pigpen basically drank himself to death. They replaced him with Keith, and Keith had the same sort of insecurities and and inclination to self-medicate that Pigpen had, and eventually he died. Brent, the same, and Vince Welnick, the same. Fortunately, Bruce Hornsby never became fully a member of the Grateful Dead on his own decision, and Tom Constantin didn't stay around long enough to, to get dragged down. And all I can say is, for any number of reasons, especially in the case of Brent, who, who was who made vocally and and songwriting and playing, made an immense contribution to the the, the '80s Grateful Dead. Um, but he, from childhood, I mean, he clearly had some major self-esteem issues and never could feel worthy. And that was it. You know, he just he just couldn't uh, he couldn't feel good about himself, and uh, eventually checked mm-hmm. out. Was he sort of fun to be around though? Because that's kind of the era I always gravitate to. I think Keith is probably the better player, but I think Brent was uh, the Brent era is the era I listened to. Was he a was he a nice guy to be around? A chill guy? Brent Brent was a nice guy to be around, but you know, also depends on how much he'd had to drink. And he was he was kind of shy, but he was very sweet and. Uh, you know, really, really, a, just a, a really good guy in a scene that required everybody to sort of look out for themselves. Um, and um, it's, I've always felt that Jerry, Jerry really, really, really took the loss of Keith hard, uh, Brent hard, um, because he just felt that it wasn't right. It just wasn't right that, that a guy so talented could not feel the love that people had for him and it was like you know the grateful dead was sort of this big giant dragon beast that was gobbling people up we said earlier it was a big celebration and what what makes this beast come out well any artistic endeavor especially a a group one is going to generate a certain amount of not necessarily insecurity but you know challenges the the confidence of you know am am i really keeping up or am i not and that's that's true of everybody in the band you've got a situation in which that by sheer popularity you're you're i always think of the grateful dead as this sort of little dot in this in the center of a bunch of concentric circles and there's them and the crew and then there's the office staff and close friends and then there's 
more and more deadheads, you know, all the way around them. And the people on the outside are all trying to get into the middle. And that creates a lot of pressure and psychological pressure. And it's not like they, they came to the Grateful Dead office or, 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 uh, or studio and, you know, were harassing people or, you know, occasionally we'd see people in hotels and whatnot. But it just, the feeling was there. And the feeling basically, or at least with Jerry, was that a lot of people depended on him, not only people like me and, and my family and, and all the other employees, which was one element of it, but also the deadheads depended on him for a good time. And he wanted to, like, not be responsible. And it, it caused him, among other things, to self-medicate and, and, uh, and uh, sort of tune out so that he wasn't responsible anymore. And it's, you know, it's not necessarily the wisest way to cope with things, but it's, it's a very understandable way. I think a lot of deadheads feel that, like, why couldn't they just organize a way to take a break, you know, have some time off? Uh, sort of like what Fish yeah, has done, well, you know, how Fish has kind of kept that's going. A, that's, and... a, that's, a long, that's a long story that, that uh, there's no easy answer to. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. And in the moment, and then all the, like you said, all the pressures. But, but what, how does Dead & Company feel compared to the Grateful Dead shows? Or, you know, I know Bob Weir's touring now with the Wolf Brothers. What do those feel like? Dead & Company uh, feels uh, like a, a, great, a great variation on the theme. Uh, they play really, really well. That you've got, you know, three old guys and, and three young guys, relatively speaking, younger guys. You know, they don't play 80 shows a year. They play, you know, half that, if that. So the, the pressure is less. And quite frankly, uh, it's just it's just a much lower key scene, uh, except when they go on tour and then, you know, they sell a lot of tickets. Can't complain about that. No, it's a nice little retirement bonus, I take it. Have you seen them, Dead & Company? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And had a, had a great time. Yeah, I think that's very interesting about Jerry. He is a kind of a person that's very well remembered in, in some circles, but kind of not. I just read this recent book, um, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, like the new rise in psychedelic research. And they, talk, uh -huh. and they talk a lot about who spread LSD around the country. And I, I, there was no mention of Jerry and, and whatnot, but I think he is definitely kind of a psychedelic pioneer in that field. I, that's absolutely the case. And, well, Poland, I mean, obviously Poland had to mention Kesey. Uh, yes, yes. It was to be fair to Poland. Okay. To be fair to Poland, it was more of like a medical history. I mean, like for the yeah, yeah. No, no. He he got interested in that. And, and, and look, I have I have great respect for him. Yeah, me um, too. It was a great yeah, book. But yeah, if you're if you're trying to chase to trace the impact of psychedelics on American culture, um, and you leave out the Grateful Dead, then you, you kind of missed the point because they are the single biggest element of that history for the last, you know the last 50 years what era sticks out to you as being like the sort of highlight oh well, my favorite is 1969 yeah i i liked i liked it when they played 40 minutes and never sang <laughs> and and just wanted the you know wanted the stars with uh with uh, uh like stretched out jams so yeah my favorite single show was this this show in which they were simply brilliant through the whole show and then they came back for the encore and it was Hey Jude, and it was the worst version of Hey Jude ever played by any band ever, anywhere, at any time. It was simply awful. And that's why I love that show, because they were willing to take risks and potentially be really, really bad on the same, at the same time that they were just brilliant the rest of the night. So, you know, that's, that's sort of, that, that was their charm, and, and that's why I love it. 
don't you make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. The minute you let her into your heart, you can start to make it better. Be you.